Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? So this is something we probably should have talked about off air. Uh, I probably should have talked with you before I went off and did this, but I should obviously tell you now. I have worked out a sponsorship deal for the show. Really? Yeah. So tonight's episode is brought to you by Blue Diamond Dynamite. When only the best will do, use Blue Diamond. It'll blow shit up real, real good. Remember, everybody, if you support our sponsors, that'll get us closer to doing more terrible comics that you will hear <laughs> us rant about. But fortunately, tonight the comics are far less terrible ah they're fucking they're fucking great they're right they're the reason why we wanted to do this show the reason why this show was with your baby and your idea these are some great fucking books tonight absolutely this week's episode drops the week that dc is finally really truly gonna kill batman so they've said in justice league number 75's death of the justice league so we figured we would start this week with stories about the death of the Dark Knight. I'm going to throw this right out front. We are not doing Grant Morrison's Batman R.I.P. and Final Crisis in this one because we are going to be handling the Morrison stuff something in order and jumping all the way to R.I.P. without Will having read the stuff in the interim would make it make even less sense than it does the first time you read R.I.P. to begin with. So- Matt has made it his life mission to convince me that grant morrison is a good batman writer even if i can't convince you of that to at least make you appreciate the arc and the structure with which morrison wrote i'll tell you this i'll tell you this i felt really good about an interview that i just read uh with morrison and they disclosed that the original idea for damien was to kill him off in the first arc and i'm like hey I, there's an idea I can get behind. I'm sad that you, that you went astray, but you know, I, I can at least support that. Tonight, other than the briefest of one or two panel cameos, there is no Damien. So that's, that's a good night for Will right there. Every night where there's a minimum of Damien content, it's a good night. Tonight, actually, two of our stories are Bronze Age stories. Usually we lean more heavily into, you know, the stuff I read as it was coming out, as I often say. But tonight we're dealing with a bunch of stories, a bunch of issues that are from before I was born or before at least I was conscious of comic books. So that's that that makes for a fun night. And it's really good Bronze Age stuff. Absolutely. We're going to start off with To Kill a Legend. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 500, written by Alan Brenner, pencils and inks by Dick Giordano, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by John Costanza, edited by Paul Levitz, with a cover date of March of 1981. To allow Bruce Wayne to soothe his survivor's guilt about witnessing his parents' murder, the Phantom Stranger transports Batman and Robin to a parallel Earth, where they must attempt to stop that world's Joe Chill from killing Thomas and Martha Wayne. We've read Alan Brennert before in a different high concept story and a much stranger one. He wrote Holy Terror. That does not surprise me because this reads as a real high concept thing. Something that we, I think, kind of take for granted in traditional like, you know, science fiction kind of tropes. What would happen if you went back and changed the past? Although this one deals with alternate universes, which is kind of in vogue now. I first encountered this story in the 1989 trade paperback, The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told. I don't think we've hit any other stories. Half and Evil. Half and Evil was also in that trade. It's, it's one I want to dig out and find all the stories in it and make sure we cover them all. That and its companion, The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told, which had five-way revenge. I think that's, again, the only one we've covered on this show so far. But these were trades that I got you know, when I just started reading comics. And I'm honestly surprised that they didn't completely fall apart the number of times I read these comics. Because I mean, there were some great stories in both of those books. But yeah, this is a fun kind of 
wild high concept book because it's it is just phantom stranger shows up and he's like hey batman you want to go to another earth and save your parents from being murdered and batman's is all for it but dick grayson robin is there and comes along because he knows that bruce cannot be trusted to be impartial when it comes to this particular case and robin is there to ask some really good moral questions right what are the consequences of possibly removing batman from this world and one of the reasons i love this story so much is that it has such a great ending the postscript totally flips the batman mythos on its head and gives us a different kind of view of batman almost you know, to borrow uh, another Elseworld, almost kind of the speeding bullets, Batman. This is a story where the devil is in the details and that's what makes it great. There's just these little bits that make it so interesting because this alternate earth is an earth that doesn't have a heroic tradition, not just in, you know, superhero sense, but when Bruce and Dick go to the library, there's no Robin Hood. There's no historical tales of heroes like that. So no mythology. No mythology. So how does a Batman come into existence in a world like this? And what will the world be like without Batman? Meanwhile, Bruce is diehard, gung-ho, I'm going to find Joe Chill and I'm going to smack the shit out of this guy and stop him. From I'm going to fuck him parents. up. Yeah. This is for a story written in the early 80s in a pre-Miller world. This Batman is pretty hardcore. He's, he's more violent or at least more driven than you usually get from a pre-Miller Batman. Yeah, I, I'm going to admit to something. I could not lay out all of the, the comic book ages for you. Uh, I accept that this is a Bronze Age book because you tell me that it's a Bronze Age book, but this does very much feel like the end of that era. You know, you, you say it's pre-Miller, but it reads very seriously. It is very much an adult book. The Bronze Age is usually viewed as 1970 to 1985. So right before your Dark Knight, your Watchmen, your Crisis, this is the Claremont X-Men, uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, social commentary comes more to comics. I mean, not that comics were ever not political, but it wears it a little more on its sleeve than it did in the Silver Age. The code becomes a little less enforced or shows less power that's your bronze age stuff and your modern age starts with dark knight and watchmen and things like that and and the crisis and i think postmodern starts when uh netflix is uh publishing comics and adapting comics book uh, material i can i can agree with you on that now when we see young bruce here were you reminded of that Brave and the Bold that frustrated the hell out of you on that bonus episode? I, I was reminded of that. And uh, speaking of uh, Netflix, uh, Mark Millar's uh, Legends of the Dark Knight about that train, uh, because we saw that in this issue. But yeah, and, and Dick says this too, right? Fuck, this, this Bruce Wayne is a little shit. What happens if we don't kill his parents? Does he grow up to be an even bigger shit. As he says, does he become the playboy that Bruce pretends to be? Which again is a really interesting moral question. I mean, do you have the right to completely alter the course of a world just so the Batman of Earth One feels a little less bad about the death of his parents? And by the end, you see some of the negatives of his interference because he basically gets Joe Chill killed. There is some of that 
it's I believe late golden age stuff. I'm going to keep using the ages because we're talking. We've been talking about them here, where it turns out the Wayne's death was something of a conspiracy, where Thomas Wayne had ratted out this mobster, and he paid Joe Chill to kill the Waynes. And so they played with that, the Lou Moxon stuff, which has mostly been forgotten or ignored since the crisis, which I find is one of the improvements that the crisis made to the Batman origin. But we've all heard me talk multiple times about my belief that the Waynes' death should be random street crime. Uh, let me ask you this, since we see Thomas like basically raise a hand to Bruce in this issue. <laughs> Where do you fall on what kind of a guy Thomas Wayne is? Is he a driven asshole? Is he abusive? Is he psychotic, as we see in Flashpoint? Or is it more like Batman Begins? He's, he's basically a saint. I fall more into the latter category. I think he can be more flawed than a saint. I think he is probably a bit absentee, not because he's a bad man, but because he is driven, because he views his responsibilities as a doctor and as the head of the Wayne Foundation as this duty, which is why the going to the movies that night is such a big deal for Bruce, that Thomas should be taking the night off to do something special with his wife and son. I don't like him raising his hand to Bruce, but again, 1981, that's a very different view on parenting than we have in 2022. Than we had uh, in 2000, even in 1990. I think, you know, if he'd smacked him in the face, it would, but, you know, putting him over his knee would not have been viewed as at all problematic in 19, 1981. This is true. Fucking should have been. Yeah, but I, I look at that as a sign of its times and less a condemnation of Thomas Wayne. Yeah, and, and I think that's fair. And I was just thinking about that as I as I read this issue, and especially after, after having seen The Batman, uh, where he is very much a flawed character who tries to do right and then unfortunately has to kind of get his hands dirty. Yeah, I, I, th I think I definitely agree with you. Like, there is some shine taken off of the Batman story if Thomas Wayne is an asshole, if he is a scumbag. And one of the things I just, I could not understand about Tom King's portrayal of the Flashpoint Batman is that Thomas was willing to do unspeakably horrible things just to keep bruce from becoming batman like that didn't that didn't make sense to me like yes let me physically emotionally psychologically torture my son so he won't be batman did not make sense to me yeah that was always a strange beat for that character a more comedic note at least in my head on this one is that they they do not use the the Mark of Zorro as the movie the Waynes are coming from in either of these stories. And I think that also dates back to Miller. The Mark of Zorro is the particular movie. But I cannot figure out what movie they were going to see when Earth One Batman, they're walking out, you get the flashback to our Batman. They're talking about Marlon Brando. What? movie has Marlon Brando ever been in other than Superman that you'd bring an eight-year-old to? Because I can't come up with one. And then Bruce of whatever this earth is, you do see the marquee, and the movie that's big on the marquee is Annie Hall. What? Who's bringing an eight-year-old to Annie Hall? Even again, back when this came out, and we didn't know everything we know about Woody Allen now, what eight-year-old is going to be interested in Annie Hall? Maybe there was a second feature and it was something that a kid would enjoy because, yeah. Okay. Uh, what year are we approximately looking at for our Marlon Brando film? Well, this is 81 and Bruce's parents were killed 20 years ago. So let's assume 60, 61. Oh, perfect. Perfect movie. 
1962's Mutiny on the Bounty. Oh, okay. That would be something that would have worked. Yeah, uh, I can, and he, I can, he, was, uh, he was Fletcher Christian in that. Yeah, okay. I can, I can, completely, I can completely see that. You mentioned it earlier, but the, the epilogue to this story where in the end, Bruce does stop his parents' murder. And the last page is young Bruce of this earth now becoming fascinated with detection and crime. And you see his shadow as the sun casts, and you see the shadow of the bat. And I guess it's almost an aerobaros of this, you know, Batman creating himself is really interesting and is, will tie into tonight's final story in a way. I think our three stories tonight work as a trio really well because this story balances philosophy with action and theme with action. Our next story doesn't have a ton of theme to it, but is a you know wild action adventure fun. And our final story is really all about theme and story and has much less action. So the three of them work together in conversation really well. Absolutely. Good fucking job picking them out there, brother Matt. You know, I hadn't thought about it as much, how well they'd work together until I started reading them. And then it was like, oh, oh, oh good for me. <laughs> Subconscious Matt. He, he knows what he's doing. I did okay. I did okay. Do you, th- uh, you have anything else to, to say on this one? I, I just really liked, I really liked the finish, right? The, the story is good as a whole. And then you get to the last page and you're like, oh, just such a, a, a neat take on the whole premise of Batman that Batman could, could arise from a place not of despair, but of hope. And wonder, and, and like it actually says it on the page. Uh, what is it? Of awe and mystery and gratitude. What just like, admittedly, you don't look at these comics and expect great writing, but that's great writing. Brennard did not write a ton of Batman stories. He didn't write a ton of comics in general, but he is often remembered for that handful of really interesting Batman stories. He wrote nine or 10 Batman comics and a couple of other DCs and uh, four or five comics for Marvel. He was mostly a TV and film writer. TV mostly by the look of things. Wonder Woman, Buck Rogers, China Beach, L.A. Law. The Outer Limits reboot. China Beach. That's a show I haven't thought about in years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. We will get to one of his. He wrote four issues of Brave and the Bold. And I want to cover a couple. There's a couple of them that are definitely on my list of things to cover at some point, uh, the autobiography of Bruce Wayne, the story of how the Earth 2 Batman and Catwoman finally buried the hatchet and became a couple. It's another one from that greatest Batman stories ever told trade and a couple of other latter day Brave and the Bold, a Batman and Hawk and Dove story and uh, another Earth 2 story where Batman of Earth-1 goes to Earth-2 to spend time with the Huntress and Dick Grayson of that Earth and Holy Terror, which we've already covered. And he wrote one that is not a Batman story, but is a Dead Man Supergirl story that if you go back into the WMQ&A archives and dig up the episode that guested previous guests of this show, Corey McCreary, where she came on to talk about Supergirl as her favorite character. That was both Corey and my favorite Supergirl story of all time. 
it, it's a, a Christmas story and it's really, really, really good. It's like eight page story and it's just wonderful. But it's a shame that Brenner didn't write more Batman. Yeah, uh, I think that pretty much covers it for this one. All right, I've got nothing else. So that means it's time to put Detective Comics number 500 to kill a legend on the big board. We are at 90 stories on our big list. Story number one is and remains Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, number 404 to 407. Story number 30 is Lil Gotham from Lil Gotham. Story number 60 is. Mad Men Across the Water from Showcase uh, 94, numbers three and four. And number 90 is White Knight. That big old pile of shit. Matt, let me ask you a quick question. Yeah. Where could our listeners go if they wanted to see the complete list? They could go to comicsxf.com, where our list is updated when new episodes drop on Thursdays. Ah, so they could see exactly where Brave and the Bold number 20 is on the list if they wanted to. Indeed, they could. Or Batman 66, the lost episode. Great books. <sighs> this one, this one is going at least top 20. Absolutely. This is really good. Absolutely. Um, oh, I'm even thinking top 15. Okay, we, we can do that because that means it's over Blink. Tower of Babel, Sleigh Ride, Lost Episode, Mad Love. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I don't think it quite cracks the top 10. I think we're somewhere between 15 and 10. Yeah. How about Under Mask and Above Six Fingers, the new... 12 that's pretty much where i was looking yeah i think it doesn't quite have the gravitas and the the intricacy of mask yep but while six fingers is beautiful it's not as substantive and it doesn't have that ending that just grabs you like this book does did you see the bleeding cool article this week on six fingers no I think Barretton like made an Instagram post basically like lamenting the fact that according to him, he says six fingers was never published. And I know you were of the opinion that it had been published somewhere. And then I went out and looked for it and I couldn't fucking find it. So, well, I mean, in all fairness, according to the DC, you know, according to the DC wiki, it has been published. I, so. yeah. And I looked at that and I tried to get the thing that, uh, it said it was published in and it weren't it published in what it said it was. But anyway, huh. um, Bleeding Cool, you know, published this article about Six Fingers and like talked about it as this great lost Batman story. And I'm like, hey, if you'd listened to our goddamn podcast, you'd know it's really good. And we talked it. Uh, we talked about it before you guys did. Damn so right. there. <laughs> but this does make To Kill a Legend our new number 12, a very strong showing. And I think we're going to see strong showings all around this week. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think our next story is not quite going to be this high, but uh, I believe our last story is going to be even higher. Yes. Yes. Not to, not to spoil the next, uh, you know, 40 or five minutes of content or so, but man, it's, it's some good stuff tonight. Our next story is where were you on the night Batman was killed? This is Batman Volume 1, numbers 291 to 294. The writer is David V. Reed, pencils by John Calnan, inks by Tex Blaisdell, colors by Jerry Serp, letters by Ben Oda, with Milt Snappin on Just 292, edited by Julie Schwartz and E. Nelson Bridwell. Cover dates are September to December of 1977. The word has gone out. Batman is dead. Now various villains have convened in an underworld court to give their testimony to determine who was really responsible for Batman's murder. We have read David Reed before. He wrote the last Batman story, which again, <laughs> knowing that, you can absolutely see a similarity in the, this is a guy who loves his big crazy concepts and commits. Uh, this is just, 
he is just swinging his dick all over these four issues. Like it is zany. It is wild. If you had not just told me that, you know, these books were published four years apart, I would have just not believed you. Like the tone is so completely different. And that's, that's not to say that this is a bad book. Like it's, it's not going to be up in, you know, the, the teens, but it's totally different in terms of vibe and feel. But this is, this is one of the better Bronze Age stories we've read because it's just so zany. And yet it's littered throughout with like this fucking Encyclopedia Brown shit that I just love. Like I can't, I can't get enough of this. Like, like, oh, so aha, this is, the, you know, this is why you could not have killed the Batman. This is why your story is incorrect. Ha ha. I have conclusively proven you are either a liar or you're incorrect. I mean, I just, it's just, it was such a great read. To set the scene. So we have this court of the underworld court and our jury is Poison Ivy, the Scarecrow, the Mad Hatter, Mr. Freeze, Signal Man, who is obscure and the spook who is best left you know beheaded by damien uh, <laughs> uh our uh, judge is to quote the first issue master of legal intricacies rachel ghoul which look look if you were around at the time of the code of hammurabi you're probably going to know some shit about the law <laughs> just saying just saying very fair and our prosecuting attorney is Two-Face, which, of course, makes perfect sense because that's what Harv's deal was. Or is it Two-Face? Boom, boom, boom. And each of these four issues has one villain come and describe how they killed Batman. Issue one is Catwoman. Issue two is the Riddler. Issue three is Lex Luthor. And issue four is the Joker. We'll hit each one sort of in their own, although of all of them, I got to say Luthor was just just so bonkers it's just it is probably my favorite of the three just because it's so crazy and lex is wow and and it involved batman and superman standing in exactly the right spot at the right time exactly uh, you know he is a great genius uh, we'll get there because i i we, we let's hit these in order okay I'll, of all of them, Selena's is probably the simplest. And I do like that she does show up and is somewhat in mourning. I mean, she literally wears, as they describe, widow's weeds for Batman's death. And it's just this sort of, you know, she had seemingly gone straight. They had run across each other. He found out she wasn't really doing, you know, hadn't really gone straight. And in the end, she sort of runs the Batmobile off the road. Both her car and his car crash into water. And Selena chooses to save herself and her big cat over Batman. It's not a weirdly elaborate story, as we'll see in the next two, because while the next two get really complex, but it is mostly in character for Selena. And there's a lot of talk throughout of how, well, you never kill, you don't kill. So this is clearly not true. And in the end, Two-Face proves it because it, Selena worked in a detail that doesn't really work. It is absolutely, as you said, an Encyclopedia Brown sort of solution to this story my question with this is was she confused about batman's death or did she lie about batman's death i think she lied i think she probably doesn't necessarily really believe that he's dead and or if she does really believe he's dead she might as well take credit because she deserves it because she's the mourning widow-ish character? I, I guess it would have to be that she died because her story is she ran the Batmobile off the road. They're, they're both in the water. She and her big cat are floating on top of a cage, like 
a la Titanic. There's not enough room on the cage for her and the cat. Well, because you got to save the cat and Batman and uh, our just our brilliant prosecuting attorney proves uh, that the cage don't float. So uh, I guess that means she lied. I, I can't come up with any other conclusion. This story also shows Raish as a character is only a few years old at this point. And Reed doesn't quite have Raish's voice down, which is sort of fine. But, you know, Selena shows up in mourning and he's like, I should have you thrown out for mourning the, the, this enemy. And it's like, well, Raish would be mourning his death, too. But again, I'm not faulting Reed. Reed decided to run with this and to work in a character who had recently been introduced. I mean, it's been four or five years, but there'd only been a handful of stories with Raish at this point. So, you know, hey, use him and have some fun with it. And I think that's the thing. This story, as you said, Dick is swinging and this is just him like writing fun. Him just having fun writing this big, crazy story. Because it's it's a courtroom drama. And why? Why would it be a courtroom <laughs> drama? Why would these weirdos all meet together and decide this in such an orderly fashion? Like, it seems like the real quote unquote solution would be like Joker just shoots whoever disagrees with him. If I want to say that I killed the Batman, uh, then I killed the Batman. If you don't like it, I'll just fucking shoot you. Which seems like the answer here. But no, they had this very orderly procedure. All of the villains had an opportunity to submit evidence to the court. Uh, the grand jury looked at the evidence. They decided to issue the indictments. The, the villains got a chance to, to prove themselves with their, you know, cliche day in court. Like, it's absolutely zany. It is. Our, our second story is, is Riddler. And this is, this is a Gorshin Riddler. This is oh oh is it ever yeah he he's flamboyant he's wild he's got crazy riddles and weirdly elaborate schemes he's he's trying to steal a gold and platinum bejeweled typewriter he riddles Batman with bullets and I like how Reed completely hand waves the fact that Riddler absolutely shot the hell out of him and he's like. When Riddler's like, how did you survive? Like, I have my secrets and I'm not going to tell you because I might be able to use them again. It's like, Reed's just like, ah, I'm just going to, I'm not going to try to explain this. He got away. That's it. Riddler uh, having the unfortunate luck of being a duplicate for Bruce Wayne. (laughs) Yes. Impersonating Bruce Wayne to get into a party. It's like, oh, well, Batman clearly knew you weren't Bruce Wayne because he just called him and was talking to him in Florida, air quotes. It's like, yeah, that's the ticket. And and here, Riddler is hoist by his own petard by saying he trapped Batman or some rocks, then put dynamite nearby, lit a fire, and the dynamite exploded. Matt, let's get the plug in. I, I, right? I, I tried to... I tried to text you the plug. I, I'm sorry we didn't properly communicate, but get the plug right. Yes, the the blue diamond dynamite. When best you need the best, <laughs> when you need the best, reach for blue diamond dynamite. Best dynamite on the market. And Harvey just like, yeah, dynamite doesn't explode when you light it on fire. It just burns. It needs Uh, an electric spark to trigger the detonator so you're clearly lying and to prove it he ties riddler to a stake and lights a bunch of dynamite on fire with eddie just panicking which is again (laughs) delightful and my one panel in this one that made me kind of raise an eyebrow when the various you know courtroom gallery is like What's he doing? What's he doing? killer moth makes some kind of comment to lex luthor and luthor responds to it i'm sorry lex luthor would not lower himself to say a word to killer moth we'll find out soon killer moth yeah no lex luthor killer moth says something to lex luthor lex luthor looks at him and goes no and just walks away just no you are beneath me and speaking of lex lex is our third suspect and Luthor strides into this courtroom in a 
costume that wow it's got a cape and so much it's bedazzled and he is strutting around like he's king shit well if you had just killed batman and you were about to put your brain in superman's body you'd be pretty fucking excited too matt that is true although this one left me with a question Okay, so Lex has this crazy science device that erases Batman's mind, transfers Superman's mind into Batman's body so Lex could beat Superman to death in Batman's body and then, you know, put his brain into Superman's body. Yeah. He never says it in the story, but my assumption is he did this because he wanted to, you know, beat Superman to death with his bare hands. Because that's the only reason why I'm like, well, why didn't you just erase Superman's brain and then just jump right into that body? It seems like you're adding step two when you, you know, it's step one is scheme. Step two is beat Superman's death. Step three is profit. You really could have just gone step one right to step three and skip step two. But I guess it is Lex. I mean, that's he is an arrogant dillweed and that's just sort of why wouldn't he just decide to punch the man who caused his baldness to death that that's the (laughs) the silver age reason why lex luthor hates superman so much young superboy accidentally caused him to go bald that was the origin too and that uh that superman choose your own adventure book that i had years and years and years and years ago so yeah that's that's canon for me yep I love it. I love Silver Age motivations. But and also the needlessly elaborate plan, again, is very lax. That is absolutely his thing. And the final, the nail in Lex's coffin is that somehow Two-Face got in touch with Superman. And Superman just sort of shows up and he's like, yeah, you've all got amnesty. As long as you're in the courtroom, I'm not going to come after you. And yeah, I'm still alive. And Batman and I basically figured out you were up to something because why would somebody offer me a million dollars to speak to the PAL about the environment when I would do it for free? And so I figured it must be something and I found it was you. So Batman and I switched places and we set up force fields to keep your mind control or mind zappy ray from affecting us. Again, their plot, needlessly complicated. You know what Lex is doing. You could have just waited for him to steal the crown of Charlemagne from the Gotham Museum, waited for him to be coming out of the building, and then, you know, punched the hell out of him and his goons. That would have worked too, Bruce. But I guess when you're fighting Lex Luthor, needlessly complicated is part of the deal. And it was fun to have Superman, you know, cosplay as Batman and, like, pretend to, to be hurt by some of these punches. Why not? Superman got to have some fun. That works for, for me. And our final suspect is, of course, the Joker. Because when you're coming up with a Batman's death story, it's always going to wind up being the Joker in the end. Or pretty close. This one, I, I just have to call the cover. The covers on all four of these issues are great. And that last cover with the Joker looming over a Batman whose face seems to have been erased is really good. This one, Joker goes into a fur warehouse to steal $500,000 in cash that was there. Sees Batman beat up a guy who was trying to steal some furs. Joker comes back the next day. Batman's back. Joker kills him and then erases everything that could be identifying so he can have one last laugh at everyone so they'll never be able to figure out who Batman is. Which is actually a really Joker way to end Batman. Only I get to know. Yep. Also, this one has... The Joker, as he's narrating, there's some of these narration boxes that have like little Jokers on them. There's one at the bottom of page five that has the Joker and the sort of on his stomach with his ass in the air position. That is a really odd posture for the Joker, but very much in keeping with 
the way the Joker is portrayed here. Zany, but still very homicidal, which is, is, is a fun Joker. The Joker is like, you know, they demand evidence. And the Joker's like, well, I got photos. And the Joker goes off to get the photos, at which point Two-Face follows him out, takes off his face, and oh, guess what? Two-Face has been Batman all along. Gotcha, bitch. Yeah. And reading it the second time, it's like, oh, yeah, I completely see that this is Batman all along. Two-Face would probably be able to put all this stuff together, but it's so obvious that, oh, right, flat out detective work. It's Batman. And, you know, Batman follows Joker back to the Ha Hacienda. Joker has a weird head band device that warps the air and causes disorientation which batman beats by going okay joker's never where i think he is so i'm just gonna keep swinging at the spots the joker isn't at and eventually i'm gonna hit him and it works (laughs) okay that's some bronze age wackiness but it works with the story and then it turns out two-face has been in arkham all along and the very end, we find out that the Batman that Joker killed was instead just an obsessed fan who was planning to someday take Batman's place when Batman eventually fell and so kept doing the things that Batman did. Only this time he happened to run afoul of the Joker, which sucks to be this guy. That's what he gets for going out in hockey pads. <laughs> yes. But again, this story is, there, there's not really theme to this. There isn't anything deep going on here. This is just wild, wacky fun. And yeah. you know what? That can make for a great story sometimes. Absolutely. You know, it, like I've said, it's, it's a courtroom drama with these zany little Encyclopedia Brown twists. And of course, Batman is not dead. And of course, he wins in the end. And it's just, it's just a silly, fun, good time. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's much more to say about this because this one is one where we talked about a lot of plot because that's what this story is. It's a lot of plot. And, and <laughs> it is a lot of plot. A lot goes on in these four issues. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but I think that's that's pretty much all we have here. That means it's time to put Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed on the big board? I mean, top half. Absolutely top half. For sure. I'm looking somewhere probably in the mid to low 30s, which has a lot of these fun stories that don't have a lot of weight to them. Half an Evil, uh, Homewrecker's Life on Mars, Doomsday Book, Fear for Sale. Those all feel like right around where we're talking with this book. This is better than Half an Evil. Yeah, I can, I can go for that. Is it better than Blood Secrets, which is right above that, the Detective Comics annual where... Bruce, we see young Bruce training with a detective. That's that's the Mark Wade story, right? Yes. That does have a good ending. It does. That mm. uh, that that's that story has a lot going for it. It says a lot about Batman. It has more, much more theme to it than this. Yeah, I would agree. So so let's say this. I definitely can't see it being better than Lil Gotham up at 31 because Lil Gotham is similarly a lot of fun and really wild but has much more character and much more heart to it this story is it's not that it 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 doesn't have heart in a bad way but it's it's not trying for heart it's trying to just tell a bunch of wacky stories I think I really want to put it in at 35. That's that's where I would go with it. Okay. I, I'm happy with that. I think putting it right below Blood Secrets, right above Half and Evil, is a good, good showing for this story. Our final story for the night is 
whatever happened to the caped crusader this is from batman volume one number 686 and detective comics volume one number 853 the writer is neil gaiman with pencils by andy kubert inks by scott williams colors by alex sinclair letters by jared k fletcher Edited by Mike Martz and Janelle Aslan. Cover dates were April of 2009 and June of 2009. In this dreamlike tale, the friends and enemies of Batman gather to eulogize him and tell the tales of his many lives and deaths. Flat out, I love this story. This is I a masterpiece. Am, yeah, I am a, a Gaiman mega fan. I've read pretty much anything I can get my hands on. I met my wife because someone introduced us because, oh, you both like Neil Gaiman. You might like to, to know each other. So I, I owe Gaiman that. He's working with Andy Kubert on this, who he'd worked with previously on 1602. And Kubert had worked with Grant Morrison on some of their earlier Batman run that we already covered some of. This story takes place out of continuity, but in real world placement right after the first phase of Morrison's Batman, right after Batman R.I.P. and Last Rites, and before the Battle for the Cowl, Batman Reborn period. So there was a lot of talk when this was first announced that is this a canonical thing? And it's it's not. It's Gaiman just writing this two-issue love letter to Batman. And I remember this was announced on the final panel of the final day of a San Diego Comic-Con. Like DC had had Uh the entire, you know, convention. They had the final big stage panel. And at the end of the panel, like, oh, by the way, we've got this coming up. And it was just, bam. And I was just like jaw on the floor because this was my favorite writer writing my favorite character. I knew I was going to be, blown away by this thing and the title is of course an homage to whatever happened to the man of tomorrow alan moore and dave gibbons final pre-crisis superman story the coda to everything that had happened to superman before the crisis which is another legendary story but this is beautiful in its art in its story in what it says about Batman. Absolutely. And um, this story made me cry like a big dummy. (laughs) Oh, it it got me too. It got me and I've read this thing multiple times. Just in in the way that it's structured, none of it seems hokey. There are so many moments in this book where your jaw just kind of drops. This gaming guy, pretty good writer pretty good and he can translate you know being good at prose into being good at comics and those that's not an automatic transition this is our second game in story because he wrote one of the original black and white shorts too he did the uh, black and white world the one where batman and the joker are actors oh that was a good one too which is it is so different tonally from this story and This story, the structure here is so smart. Gaiman plants little seeds in part one that bear fruit in part two, that it would have been easy to not have laid in this one panel early on that has Alfred comment on Bruce and Martha and how Bruce could have these moments of perfect happiness with his mother before the the death of his parents and that comes back around and pays off at the very end and without if you hadn't already read it you don't necessarily pick it up on a conscious level but it's there and even with with a couple of comedic bits we have in the beginning of the first issue the you know the, the kid trying to uh you know hit up these super villains for uh, sort of, you know to to watch their car and when he gets to the Joker, it's like, you're going to kill me. I know you're going to kill me. Like, it's some dark comedy and it's it's just the right amount, right? It's not something that lingers over the, the whole book. Like most of this is serious, but just those just nice little comedic beats there. I really enjoyed that. 
you see different takes on the different Batman characters from different universes or timelines or whatever you want to call them. And there isn't that complex multiverse type stuff that you can get in comics because it doesn't matter here. No. And each story, the Batman costume look is slightly different. And there's some that are obvious homages to different artists and different eras of Batman. But Kubert doesn't lean so heavily into it that the styles are jarring. There are stories where that would work, where you would have different artists on each of these chapters in each of these stories but that wouldn't be fitting to what this story is doing it's just little nods and little acknowledgements of those differences and the gallery of characters at this funeral you can just look through it and it's just littered with easter eggs and it's the fact that it's at the back room of a bar and the bartender is Joe Chill. And he's his line about, I was there at the beginning, so I should be here at the end. Will, did you ever watch Quantum Leap? Oh, boy. So do you remember the final episode of Quantum Leap? So I don't remember watching it, but I know this because I wrote a trivia game for another podcast. I know the final episode, Sam leaps into his own body. The last episode is set in this town that isn't really a town. And it seems like other people are leaping. And it's a, most of it's set in a bar. And the bartender is heavily implied to be God or whoever is causing Sam to leap. And it, it has a similar vibe to this. And that it exists in this sort of nebulous, no space, no time. And it's just, it, it's a random thing that I associate because that was a show that has a lot of meaning. We're, we're going to talk about this story and we're going to spoil it. Again, it's, it's many years old and we could talk about it, but you need to read it to get the full effect of it. Yes. And I want to make a couple of quick points because I was, I was flipping through trying to find, you know, you, you brought up the gallery here. I liked two things. And it's just, they're just such subtle little notes. When Langstrom comes in, you know, he asks Alfred, where do I sit? And he says, either side. Because much like a wedding, wedding has a groom's side and a bride's side. Here we have a hero's side and the villain's side. So Langstrom has been on both aisles are both sides of the aisle. Two-Face sits exactly, not in the middle, but he sits with the villains. The Two-Face side is closest to the villains and the Harvey side is closest to the heroes. Like that little bitty attention to detail, I just loved. And knowing Gaiman, that's in the script. Gaiman writes a fairly full script with a lot of detail. In all fairness, maybe it was Kubert, but that strikes me as the kind of thing Gaiman would have put into a script. And that's what I really like about somebody who takes the job of making a comic book seriously, right? Attention to detail and storytelling and just the craftsmanship. You know, we pick up a lot of issues, you know, a lot of weekly books that just don't have this level of care and attention to them. And it just, it makes me mad. It makes me mad. Even if we're reading, you know, for something else we might do for the site, some small publisher. And it's clear, like, say it's a licensed book, you know, they pay some artists, you know, three nickels and they're doing what they can on deadline. And it's just, it's crap. But this, this is the good stuff. And it's because of that care and attention to detail. Throughout all of these stories, at least especially the, the shorter bits in the second issue. The first issue is really just two extended stories. One, which is a golden age Catwoman telling the story of the death of her Batman, which is inspired by, very much inspired by Robin Hood, the very end especially. And then an Alfred telling the story of his Batman, which is 
a real heartbreaker because this is a Batman who existed in a world not unlike that story from Kill a Legend, that world where there isn't this world of elaborate superheroics. So Alfred winds up using his skill as an actor and his old friends to be the rogues gallery, to give this Bruce who kept almost succumbing to the darkness and the depression something to fight. And at the end of that, right before that Batman meets his end, he contemplates a world where Batman would be real. And he knows that were that Batman real, he would never quit. And that's that note is hit here. And that becomes a motif that you see in all of the shorter deaths that you see in the next issue. I my face just just dropped in that second story reading seeing what alfred did and again we we gotta spoil it uh eventually alfred becomes the joker and it's just like wow what just an amazing story beat and 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 we've seen you know different heroes become villains like you know we saw you know gordon become a killer for that film adaptation of uh, gotham by gaslight and that was interesting that was cute uh but this is just such just such a novel idea and such with so many ramifications and stunning. And he does it for all the right reasons. And you have to imagine this is a much more silver agey 66 joke because I can't imagine the Alfred is out there killing people on this earth. I think this is more of an elaborate pranky Cesar Romero joker. Leaving clues, leaving escapes, always making sure that Batman wins, but taking care to, you know, put up a good show. But then you get into issue two and you see a story of the golden age Batgirl, the Betty Kane Batgirl, whose Batman sacrifices himself to stop a bomb from blowing up half of Gotham. You hear the Mad Hatter say that Batman never quit. Clayface tells a story, says he died saving the city. He died saving me. And when Clayface says that he's not worth it, Batman says, everyone's worth it. He dies to save a small child who he passes to Harvey Bullock before he's swept out to sea and drowns. The Joker pumps him full of more Joker venom than any human being could survive but Batman never gives in to the laughter. He dies unsmiling to just prove that he can do it. A super Superman who says that if he brings Bruce back to Gotham, the monsters will kill him. And Batman's response is, if the monsters are trying to kill me, they're not trying to kill the innocent. It's, it's variations on this theme that Batman never quits and that Batman is there to protect the innocent. And in the end, there's been narration throughout this whole thing. And one voice is clearly the spirit of Bruce Wayne, of Batman, looking on on this strange funeral. And the other voice, and I will tell you at the time, a lot of people were assuming that that was going to be Gaiman's death from the Sandman. Although Gaiman himself put the lie to that at the end of the first issue when Batman actually thinks, I don't think death is a person. So that that was pretty obviously Gaiman trying to lay that to rest right there so people wouldn't assume that they were going to get that cameo. And in the end, and this one's an interesting counterpoint to the story we read last week, Death and the Maidens, the person who's waiting is Martha. And she guides him. And in the end, Batman says, you know, he doesn't believe in an afterlife, which for this story, I'm willing to absolutely run with because it's it's the theme uh, a Batman in the regular DC universe who doesn't believe in an afterlife. That's kind of doesn't work because you're dealing with a world where you regularly meet dead man. So kind of hard. But for this story, fine. Maybe this is a Batman from an Earth where there wasn't a dead man or whatever. It doesn't matter because we're dealing with platonic ideals. We're dealing with 
a Batman who is there to be Batman. And finally, the the line that always gets me is that, you know, he's, you know, so do I go on to my eternal reward? And she's like, no, you get to do it again. The reward for being Batman is being Batman. You'll get eight years of perfect happiness and then you're Batman. And it's, it's beautiful and it's thoughtful and it's true. I mean, this is a fictional story, but the idea that sometimes the work itself is the reward for the work and that you sometimes just this is who you are and this is what you will be is beautiful and that's what you have to be yeah and that's why i this connects up with to kill a legend because in that world even though there is no heroic legacy bruce wayne will always be batman and the final bit where we had seen Bruce reading Goodnight Moon with Martha as a boy. And the final bit is, for all intents and purposes, the camera pulling back. And we get Goodnight Moon with the world of Batman. And it pulls out into the, the Batman, the bat signal. And the signal morphs into hands handing the newborn Bruce to his mother is beautifully drawn and so smart and so thematic and a perfect circle. In a way, this is a much more, the the book is much more inspirational, but the ending to me is very similar to the series ending of Irredeemable. And uh, I'll spoil that for those of you who uh, haven't read those 37 issues of darkness and destruction and just awful things. But at the end of that series, you know, we have this Superman archetype who has ravaged his world, who is beyond, of course, redemption. But the postscript of that series is, well, we'll send him, we'll send the idea of him to a new world and he can have a new life. And what it basically is, We send the idea of the Plutonian to our world where he can be better. And that idea can be Superman. Like it's literally given to the Superman writers to write this mythos. So it's, it's kind of a meta hook, but it's the same thing. Like here we see the literal rebirth of Batman and an irredeemable. It's the, you know, the metaphysical, the, the birth of the idea of Superman. God, I love this story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, again, I I see you tearing up now and man, I, I teared up reading it just when Martha comes into that page and it's just, it's lit so beautifully and it's, it's such a much more, it's, it's such an intense reaction compared to death and the maidens. Like uh, that was like, all right, you guys are going to walk around Gotham. I guess it's some kind of delusion or he's tripping balls. Or like, I just, there was no emotion to that at all. It was ultimately a disappointment because I knew, you know, in the hands of such a great writer, but here, this is the very best of what a monthly Batman comic book can be. And that's, uh, you know, spoiler, this is what it's going to have to be in our top five. Like this is the pinnacle of the type of emotional reaction you can get when you just tell a good fucking story, when it's not about bombs and explosions, it just gets at the core of who this guy is and who he aspires to be and who we should aspire to be. And it's just, I got no fucking notes on this. It's a perfect story. And it was a just a treasure to read. Yeah. So I think you, you've already set the stage. So let's let's do it. It's time to put whatever happened to the Cape Crusader on the big board. I'm going to go higher than saying top five. I'm thinking, I mean, top three. Uh, yeah, I'm, I was absolutely right there with you. I mean, I was... I almost wanted to just type out in my in my notes 
two, because uh, that's where I think it belongs. Yeah. Yeah. It is as emotional as cold days. I think the art is stronger. I think the ideas are much deeper, but it's hard to beat year one as just a kind of foundational text. Yeah. I think year one just does so much and Kubert's art is, is gorgeous, but Mazzucchelli just slays that book. If year one had been drawn by Miller himself, I don't, I think year one might not be, I I would have more leeway with year one, but Mazzucchelli just kills every panel of year one. And Miller is so restrained in the writing of year one. Yes. Yes. There's that too. But yeah, I think this is number two. Yep. Yeah, it's funny. I for quite a while there, I've been like trying to think of what else might wind up in the top five. And it's not that I had forgotten this story, but it's like it, it's not a story that is remembered as much as uh, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. And I always wonder if my gaming bias came through in how much I remember loving it. And I'm glad to see that it didn't. You don't have to know Gaiman to love this story. It's, it's beautiful. So that, that, that does it for this week. Next week, as the Batman becomes available on HBO Max, uh, we're going to look at one of the stories that inspired it and two other tales recounting the history of the Dark Knight. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June is Dead, Long Live June, Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbond, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, and Sam Hopper for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, at BatChatComics, and uh, the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop on Thursdays. And support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. I am at Will Nevin, and I'm also out of here. Good night, Miami. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.